Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss. But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back to the Latter-day Contemplation Podcast. I think it's apparent that I'm not Christopher and I'm not Riley, but I'm excited to be with you today, guest hosting Uh, Riley and Christopher are both out sick, and we wish them a speedy recovery. My name is Lindsay O'Lynn, and I am the co-founder and social media director for Latter-day Peace Studies, which is sort of the umbrella organization that established this podcast, as well as our sister podcast, Latter-day Peace Studies Presents Come Follow Me. Co-hosting with me today is a wonderful member of our team, Tom Vogel. Tom, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure, Lindsay, I'd be glad to. Yeah, I'm, I'm Tom Bogle, and I actually do the editing on the Latter-day Peace Studies Come Follow Me podcast. And I, I have a bit of a background in education and asking great questions, which is part of what we're going to be talking about today. Awesome. Well, I'm excited that we're going to get to do this. I'm also a little bit terrified. <laughs> when, when Tom and I discussed, well, when we were first asked um, to do the podcast. And then we were discussing kind of the things that we thought that might be good to talk about. We both discovered that we were kind of obsessed with gaining knowledge. And uh, it's kind of one of those things that takes over our worlds a little bit. And so as I was prepping for this podcast, I caught myself over and over like, oh my gosh, I need to, I need to read this book. I need to watch this video. I need to, you know, pull out that old article that I read about the topic. And, you know, I I had to kind of catch myself because I realized that I was just obsessed with making sure I knew every single thing so that if anything came up, I knew what to say and what to do. And, um, I, I, I really tried to stop doing that and focus a little bit more on my inward experience, tried to turn it around to meditation um, and and connecting with God directly. So maybe I could get some actual wisdom and not knowledge, which we're going to talk about a little bit. Um, Yeah. So it's kind of been an interesting week. And even though I tried not to get too much information and knowledge I still ended up with like six pages of notes so (laughs) (laughs) you know old habits die hard and I think that it's kind of something that was has been ingrained in me since my school days so right that's always fun and I think that's really where we want to start is like this idea of of knowledge the pursuit of knowledge and why we get so hung up in it and, and where that starts. So for you, where did that, that kind of idea begin? You know, I think that um, definitely as a child at school, at school especially, I was constantly praised for being smart and 
knowing all the answers or getting the best test scores, things like that, you know, kind of the typical gifted child path that you get put on. And um, it, I think I just kind of started to identify with that and it began to feel like an expectation. And there was part of me that the expectation was a difficult thing to live up to, but I also kind of loved it. I loved the, <laughs> you know, I loved that people put me on that pedestal. It made me feel special. It, it gave me an identity that I, that I loved and I thought was important. And yeah, I think that just over, over the years, people came to know me as the one that knew the answers or the, you know, I'd be called the walking encyclopedia or whatever. And it, it just kind of became part of my identity. Yeah. I, I can relate to that 100% as a, as a young child. Like I, I had a subscription to National Geographic magazine from the time I was probably eight years old until I was about 16. And it wasn't, it was something that I asked for because I enjoyed it, but I didn't realize how much at the time I was internalizing that and, and the praise and the recognition for those things as being the foundation for my personal identity. And I didn't realize until much later in life, how destructive that was going to be. And I know that the people around me in my life who are praising me for those things certainly didn't have any ill intention, but, but man, if uh, how it sets the standard for you of what do you do when you don't know something and, and this inability to say, I don't know to the point that I would make up things. So someone would ask me a question. I would just make up an answer that seemed reasonable and logical in my head, and I would speak it with confidence. And if I spoke with confidence, people just assumed that what I was telling them was true. And, and then how destructive that is. And I, you know, I had forgotten how much I did that as a kid until I'd started to see my own teenage sons following in that pattern and recognizing exactly where it came from. Yeah, I, I absolutely identify with that. Or I would even go so far, like if someone asked me a question that I didn't know, I would go, you know, say it, say it was on a text message or something where I could get back to them. I, I would go and research it, spend a bunch of time researching it, making sure that I knew all the answers, even though it was something that I wasn't really interested in. I would I'd go find those answers for them and then provide it back. But it you know, it, it would be under the illusion that I knew it already, you know, and I think, I think there's something that happens in that process where you start to really be a, f you're afraid of being a fool, right? Right. And you're afraid of not knowing or admitting that you don't know, or of, of starting, of trying something new, of being inexperienced. Yeah. You, you feel that pressure and you've created that pressure on yourself to be, to live up to that identity that you've created and other people have helped create for you. And I agree. I, I don't think people we're ever doing anything with ill intent to try to build that up, but it's just kind of a natural consequence of what happens. And then I think you kind of start to lose your true identity and um, you kind of become someone that you're not, but you want people to think you are. And you, you just don't, I don't know. And it, for me, I don't know if it's done this for you, but it kept me from taking chances because I didn't want to fail at anything because that would completely tear down my identity. 
I've always, you know, I wanted to be seen and I wanted to actually be that person that anything I tried, I was the best at and I succeeded at. And so I think it kept me from doing things that I really wanted to do, but I, I kind of steered away from risks because of that. So I I had a really interesting experience with this when I was in third, maybe fourth grade. I remember bringing home a report card from school and this was back in the day when, you know, they all report cards were handwritten. They'd put it in a little sleeve and they'd send it home and you had to have your parents sign the sleeve and return the sleeve with the, you know, and, and so I looked at my report card and it, you know, it, it's straight A's all the way down except penmanship. Cause I always got to be in penmanship because <laughs> that matters. Um, but on the outside, on the little envelope that they sent it home with, there was a little note where the teacher just said, Thomas does not live up to his potential. And so, so now I have this, this, and it's funny because this is going on very subconsciously. This did not feel like it had much impact on me at the time when I was in my late twenties, early thirties, this experience came back with this like resounding, like, oh my goodness, this has messed you up your entire life. Um, But it's this, this internal war going on is, well, if you're praising me constantly for, for being intelligent, for being smart, for jumping through your hoops, for getting your good grades, in what ways am I not living up to my potential? What should I be doing more? How is this always not enough? And so it was this idea of, I had to get smarter. I had to know more. There was a young man who was a grade ahead of me, who was, uh, was a genius and still is a genius to be honest. In fact, uh, as an adult, he went on to be a top earner on, on the game show Jeopardy. Uh, he, wow. <laughs> great guy, very endearing personality. Uh, but I was one grade behind him in school. And so all of my teachers kind of judged me based on expecting me to fill his shoes. In my sixth grade class, in preparation for the state geography bee, they played a game in my class that they literally called stump Tom and kids would get extra credit points. If they could ask a question that I did not know the answer to. Oh boy. (laughs) And, but the burden was on me to get all of the, now I was not graded on this in any way, shape or form. I didn't get plus or minus points, anything like that. It was just a game we would play, but the kids would get extra credit points if they could ask a question that I didn't know. And so like, like you said, your whole identity comes with this knowing stuff and you become afraid to admit that you don't know or to try something new. And, and along with that, it becomes this, this like pursuit, nonstop pursuit to know more and to know more and to know more. And then to be able to communicate to other people that you know more than they do. <laughs> Because that's how you find validation in the world. That's how you find your place in the, in, in the room. Now, I had a, a recent experience that I wanted to move up to a new role in, in my, my job. And I asked my, my direct manager <clears throat> what I needed to do to prepare myself for this role. Like, this is very transactional. What do I need to know? What new things do I need to know to be able to do this job better, to be able to earn this promotion or, or however you wanted to, to label it. And her surprise or her, her answer surprised me when she said, talk less. And I was like, so taken aback by that, that 
that that same week I started doing some kind of one-on-one coaching with uh with Morgan Aldis who who has been a, a guest on this podcast previously and and is a mutual friend of ours and as we we dive dove into that idea a little bit like I discovered I have this this complex where I have to not only be the smartest person in the room I have to make sure everyone knows I'm the smartest person in the room and the sad reality is I don't think there ever has been a time in my life when I actually was the smartest person in the room. But man, I had to like put that out there to try and convince people that I was and and now re- reflecting and realizing how damaging that has been to so many possible friendships and relationships and acquaintances that either I come off as as braggadocious, come off as just a know-it-all, or come off as intimidating to people who are like, he's, he's too smart for me. I don't need to talk to him. When some of my best friends are people whose experience with knowledge has been the opposite of mine, that, that they have been labeled from the time they were very young as someone who was not intelligent, someone who wasn't able to learn, someone who, who just didn't do well in school. And so their sense of this lack of value also came from their relationship with knowledge and knowing. And so it kind of goes both ways that where you and I felt that we had to know, you know, we have mutual friends who felt like they were worth less because they didn't or because they couldn't. And so I just, I want to talk a little bit about this relationship with knowledge and our personal value somewhat. What do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely know, you know, family members, relatives, friends that had a completely opposite experience to mine where, you know, they, no one ever showed them any sort of confidence. And so they, they kind of look at my experience and they're like, well, boo hoo, you know, you, you <laughs> poor girl that everybody put you on a pedestal, you know, but I think that both of those situations can create cages around us. These, these false identities and um, you know, the false self that we create based off of these external situations and experiences that we go through and the things that people say, um, they, they start to kind of attach to us and they really do become kind of these, these flax and cords, you know, that (laughs) bring you down to hell because it's tearing you away from your true identity. None of those things, like none of the things that we grew up, you know, being expected to do and the thing, the names that we were called, you know, none of that is us. We can identify with it to our own detriment, but it's not really who we are. One thing that keeps coming to mind is just Eckhart Tolle talks a lot about what's called like the egoic mind. And he talks about how the root of unconsciousness is an identification with the mind. I don't know if you've heard of the book, The Power of Now, by that he wrote. Um, I've the, heard of it. I have not read it. Yeah, I mean, it's a great book. I I barely read it this past year and have started reading it again a second time. But the the very first chapter is entitled "You Are Not Your Mind," hmm. and and I think that that's pretty significant. That that's what he chose to put first, like we absolutely need to stop identifying with our mind and our egos. 
And one of the things we both talked about, you know, that, that kind of need, well, I guess you more did, but, um, the need for knowledge being endless, like it just keeps going and it never really truly satisfies. And I think some of that for me has been because as I've grown, my circle of people that I know has gotten bigger, you know, and that, that pond, you know, has grown into an ocean and, and I suddenly saw like, whoa, I'm not nearly as smart as I was built up to be. Like, (laughs) I, I can't live up to this world. You know, when you're seeing PhDs doing all sorts of important things, talking about important topics on even TikTok and they're all over Facebook and, (laughs) you know, you're having, I mean, suddenly you're able to communicate with people that are like light years ahead of you on this knowledge journey. Right. And it only serves to overemphasize the things that you don't know. Yeah. uh, Yeah. No, that that's my experience. Exactly. Like I would say roughly, roughly 20 to 25% of my connections on Facebook are, are PhDs and professional economists and, and people who for most of my early life have been intellectual heroes of mine, people that I, I aspired to know as much as they know. Mm-hmm. And, and now that I see them kind of as, as common, normal people, um, you would think that that would put the relationship in a better light, but it doesn't. What it does is it says, oh, they know this stuff and you don't. And I need to know that. And, right, <laughs> right. And it puts that, that, you feel that burden even more. And now all of a sudden, as you're, you're walking around in these circles of people, you go, man, I'm not as knowledgeable as I thought I was. How am I actually valuable? What do I actually bring to the table in this community? I mean, when you're, when your whole identity, I mean, really is based around the idea that you're the smart one, you know, it, it really, the ego does not like when the identity looks like it might start to die. Right. Right. Um, and w- one quote that I really liked, um, from Eckhart, he says the ego's needs are endless. It feels vulnerable and threatened and so lives in a state of fear and want. Once you know how the basic dysfunction operates, there's no need to explore all its countless manifestations, no need to make it into a complex personal problem. The ego, of course, loves that. It is always seeking for something to attach itself to in order to uphold and strengthen its illusory sense of self, and it will readily attach itself to your problems. Once you recognize the root of unconsciousness as identification with the mind, which of course includes the emotions, you begin to step out of it. You become present. When you are present, you can allow the mind to be as it is without getting entangled in it. The mind itself is not dysfunctional. It is a wonderful tool. Dysfunction sets in when you seek yourself in it and mistake it for who who you are. It then becomes the egoic mind and takes over your whole life. And when I read that, I was like, wow, that's exactly what happened to me. Just at me next time. Yeah, exactly. It was like, wow. When, you know, when you identify and seek yourself in whatever ego thing you're chasing, it could be, you know, it could be money, status, power, knowledge, whatever it is. I mean, you can, you can even do this with your spirituality, like, Oh, I'm the most spiritual one, (laughs) you know, but it, when, when you begin to identify with whatever that is, it, 
takes over your whole life. And as I look back at so many of the choices that I've made and so many of the things that I've done or haven't done, it really has like that identification and that endless thirst for knowledge really has directed my paths. And and that's kind of a scary thought (laughs) to think about. (laughs) No, I, I agree 100%. Like for me, it was always something I, it was very easy for me to hide in curiosity, right? Mm-hmm. I self-identified as being recklessly curious. Now, most people, if they hear that phrase, they would say, oh, reckless curiosity would be a, a great thing. I wish I was more curious. I wish I could ask more questions. I wish I could sit in wonder and awe at the amazement of the world that is around me. And oh, trust me, you can do that 24-7 and, and never do anything with it, never get yeah. anything done. <laughs> Literally, the word reckless means without care of the consequences, right? And yeah, so you, it, anyway, I was going to go off the rails. <laughs> but, but the idea here is that what are you doing with this knowledge? To, to what end is this for? Uh, what, and, and for me, the pursuit of knowledge was to either to use it as a, as a shield to defend my beliefs, to defend my actions, to defend my, the way of viewing the world, or as a weapon to, yeah. <laughs> to attack others, to show them that they were wrong, to show them that their ideas were false. And, you know, is, is that really what, what knowledge is best used for? Or, you know, it was transactional. What can I get out of this? I'm going to use this knowledge to, because being smart is how I'm going to get ahead professionally. Being smart and being able to show that I'm smarter than other people is going to get me a seat on this, on this panel discussion or get me invited to speak at this conference. And, and for a long time, that worked. It, it, it works for a while until it doesn't. And you have this crisis of identity. And you have to figure out what is going on. And and for me, even like, I mean, even the church teaches and pushes this idea of, you know, you want to learn as much as you can in this life, right? Because that's the the thing that you can take with you. No, the glory of God is intelligence. Yeah. And, and, you know, and and I don't think they're wrong, you know, like, I I don't think that that's a wrong thing, but I think that um, the idea when we come to identify with the knowledge that that's the real issue. And so I even found, you know, I even find myself hiding in, well, the church says this is what I'm supposed to do. You know, like this is a good thing. Right. And so the ego finds ways, always finds a way to rationalize whatever it's trying to consume and obtain. Right. And that identity that it's creating, but I just think it's a funny thing that we can find those good things and use them to rationalize basically whatever we want and whatever, yeah, whatever we're trying to obtain in this life, even if the purpose, you know, really is just for status and, and power and popularity and whatever it is, but see, we're still doing the right thing. We've been told to get an education and I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. Right. No, one's going to judge you negatively or harshly because you're learning. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's always applauded. Right. Exactly. When now you're using this idea of learning to hide from personal responsibilities, to hide from uh, dealing with past traumas or 
just doing this kind of internal work and saying, who am I and what is it that I really want to do? You have a note on here that I really want to dive into a little bit because I'm super curious. I, I didn't even see this in our pre-show prep. The idea of the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden being yeah. the, the route <laughs> to death or the, the what led them to, to their expulsion from the garden. You want to touch on that just a little bit? Yeah. Um, so this is something I've actually thought a lot about. I think the first time I heard about this concept was from like a Richard Rohr talk of some sort, but um, basically in partaking of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, um, we began to identify with the egoic mind, right? So that we started to create our own identities with it. Now, because we could suddenly see, right, mm -hmm. and we believed that we could see, we now suddenly were able to learn things that in turn made us believe that we were capable of judgment. You know, we thought we could <laughs> we could judge everyone like God did because we knew and um, we thought we could see like God sees with more knowledge. We seek to control more. So I don't know if you recognize this, but for me, and maybe it's different for you, but for me, especially knowledge makes me feel like I can control things in some way. It's feeding my desire to control. Yeah. Um, I can, you know, with more knowledge, I can make sure that things don't go wrong or um, I can make sure I get the position that I want or whatever it is. That I don't that, make a bad decision. Yeah. In, in I don't situation. go down the wrong path or whatever. Right. Right. Um, so we have this desire to control. It helps to like, um, lessen our fears a little bit. And sometimes I think knowledge can be a, can become a thing that replaces faith a little bit when we're seeking to mm. gain, you know, if we can know something for sure, we don't really need to have any faith in it. Right. And so seeking for that knowledge can, uh, lessen our faith. We think we know better. And then in essence, in essence, we begin to believe what the serpent said, right? That we are now as gods, right? Now that we can see and we've partaken of that fruit, we're now like the gods. Um, I love that. The, the idea that what, what he's selling there is, is not a false identity. It's a misrepresentation of your true identity, which yes. I guess then becomes the false identity. Because that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about something, knowledge, the pursuit of knowledge and intelligence. That's a very good thing. It's our relationship with that knowledge that becomes yes. detrimental to who we are. Oh, how we, yeah, how we gold. choose to bring that, that knowledge to life is even more important than the knowledge that we gain, right? And so with that first bite of, you know, of the fruit, we flip on that ego and we create a veil between us and God. And I really love this quote um, from Rumi that said, the ego is a veil between humans and God. Um, when we, when our ego gets in the way, we can't really see who we really are. Who we really are is one with God, right? And so mm -hmm. if we have this false identity and we're, we're not seeing our true self, it really does put this veil and this disconnect between us and God, because now we believe we control and we know, we know so much and our certainty becomes a hindrance to our faith. It, it also becomes, um, it, it makes it 
difficult to surrender? Well, yeah, because that's the pursuit of knowledge is so I don't have to, right? So I can <laughs> yeah. remain in control. Yeah. If, if we're, we're never going to find that peace that we're trying to seek. Cause really with our search for knowledge that never ends, I, I really believe that we're trying to find peace, right? We're trying to finally get to that point where enough is enough. And it's, an, uh, it's an intellectual tower of Babel. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it is. I we're, like, we're that. trying to know our way into heaven. <laughs> I love that because I, Really, that that puts a very good visual in my mind as to what I I feel like I do. Um, yeah, we, we don't have to surrender when we know everything, we're in control, we suddenly got this power. I mean, there's even the typical phrase that we hear, you know, knowledge is power, right? right, it, right. it is, and it can be, but when we're thirsting after it to always seek control, to seek to judge and to act as a god we have used that tool to our own destruction. So it's, it's almost like when in the new Testament, when Christ says the love of money is the root of all evil, that, yeah. that love of anything other than God and our fellow man can also be the root of all evil, the love of knowledge yes. and like our relationship with that. It, it takes that place and in knowledge and information, like we're literally worshiping the idol of an ivory tower yeah we've oh, created our own right god you're yeah, kicking we've, me right <laughs> we've created our own gods right and i mean i've i've really gone through over the past like five years or so i've really started to actually see how many false idols i have created in my life the first biggest i mean i would say it took me longer to recognize this idol in my life of the pursuit of knowledge. But before that, it was definitely, you know, it was politics. And I had to go through a whole process of, you know, purging that from my life and recognizing it for what it was. And then, you know, once you kind of figure out and you get some of the things out of you, then God, you know, if you allow him, he shines a light on something new that we, that we get to work on and figure out. And this one, I think, is a little bit more difficult for me because, like we've talked about, knowledge is not a bad thing. The pursuit of knowledge is not a bad thing. It's like like you mentioned, it's the relationship and it's how it comes alive within us. And so it's it's kind of like having an addiction to something, but it's also something that you really can't just absolutely get rid of out of your life. And so trying to find that healthy balance where I'm continuing to learn, but I'm doing it with God in the right way and, and hopefully creating wisdom instead of just knowledge and not allowing it to consume me. So that, that was what I wanted to follow up with is this idea of if our relationship with knowledge becomes unhealthy, is there an antidote? And I know this isn't like a quick fix, but how can we change our perspective in this pursuit um, to, to develop a healthier relationship with knowledge? And you mentioned that this idea of, of knowledge or wisdom. And I think that it's really important here that we, we explain that knowledge and wisdom are not opposites. They're not dichotomous. 
they coexist. Knowledge or wisdom can be built on knowledge, but wisdom can also stand on its own without a lot of, of knowledge underneath it. So how does wisdom help us kind of like kick this addiction to knowledge? So like, like you said, I don't have the answers to this. Obviously, <laughs> both of us are kind of working through these things. And I know that I've experienced wisdom. I think wisdom is something that you feel and experience in the present moment a lot of the times. Um, but one thing that I really like is in the book of Job. It's Job chapter 28, verses 12 through 28. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but basically the question is asked, but where or where will they find wisdom? And it says mortals don't have a clue. They haven't the slightest idea where to look. Uh, so where does wisdom come from and where does insight live? Um, it can't be found by looking no matter how deep you dig, no matter how high you fly. If you search through the graveyard and question the dead, they say we've only heard rumors of it. And then it goes on and says, God alone knows the way to wisdom. He knows the exact place to find it. He knows where everything is. At the very end, it says, then he addressed the human race. And it says, here it is. Fear of the Lord. That's wisdom. And insight means shunning evil. And when you, you know, typically think of fear, you're thinking, you know, fear and trembling. You're, you're scared of him. But really fear right. just means that reverence the connection, the awe and, and the surrender, the submission to the Lord. Right. Yeah. And so, submission. I, I like that definition of it. And especially in this context. Yeah. Surrendering your will to him. That is wisdom. Al allowing him to teach you, allowing him to give you the insight and help you to create, like to take the, the knowledge that you're learning and help it come alive for what it really means and what, what it, how it actually should be put into practice. So reverencing, connecting with, and becoming one with God is where we find wisdom. And that's what I take from this story. This doesn't mean that we sh shouldn't seek to learn anything. Like we definitely want to keep learning and, and doing, you know, progressing and growing, but we have to keep that connection, that direct connection between you and God. And so you know, we, we're always taught to take things to the Lord or, you know, pray about things as, as you're learning them. Um, but I, I just think that we need to allow God to speak to us and no matter what it is. And, the, and we have to be willing to take whatever instruction comes and, and be so much of it is about being present, I think. And when we're constantly just trying to absorb knowledge for knowledge's sake, you know, and for our ego's sake, we're not present with what we're actually learning. Right. If you, if you listen to people tell their story about how they felt like God called them to do something, and, and this is true of ancient biblical texts, it's true of people living down the street from you today. If someone comes to you and they say, well, I felt God calling me to do this, almost every single one of them starts with a response to God, why? Or <laughs> I can't do that. I'm not qualified. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't talk. You know, I, Moses, I don't speak well. Uh, who, who am I that they should listen to me? All of these things 
all right, but I don't have the knowledge, skills, talents, whatever to do this thing. But God didn't say, hey, go get this knowledge, go get this skill, go get this talent. He said, do this thing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we try to hide from our calling in the pursuit of our knowledge. And God says, no, 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 that's not what I asked. I said, <laughs> go do the thing, right? To the point where, where Jonah gets swallowed by a, a whale in his attempt to run from, from the thing <laughs> that God has asked him to do. So there's this, this idea that, that we have to accept this, this calling, this, this invitation to connect, this invitation to act without knowing everything, without having all the answers, that there is this, this space where, where there is a clear gap and, and we're asked to move into that space. And, and if like, like you and I have experienced, and I know so many other listeners out there have, um, where we say, oh, but I, I can't do that yet. I don't have the skill. I don't have the talent. I don't have the ability. What we are missing out on is the wisdom that God is offering us in that moment. Because we think that the place of wisdom can be filled with our desire or, or with, with the knowledge, skills, talents that, that we develop instead of just saying, okay, God, I'm going to do this thing that you asked me to do because I know in doing that, there, that wisdom can be found. Yeah, absolutely. That, yeah, that kind of hits me hard there <laughs> because so often, like there are certain things in my life that I'm like, I know that I'm asked to do this. And, and in my mind, it's like, I'm eventually going to do that. And, and you're absolutely right that it's like, well, I'm not quite ready to do that yet. I have to prepare. I have to do all of these things first, but at the same time, I know it's something that I'm being asked to do. And, and part of me has felt like it's, it's something that I'm being like foretold, like this will happen or, um, eventually you should do this, but as I examine it in this moment, I, I recognize that it's probably something that I'm being asked to do now that I'm just telling myself I need to put off because I'm not ready. So thanks for that. Yeah, um, yeah, no problem. Anytime. Yeah. So, but I'm, I'm kind of thinking about this difference between knowledge and wisdom. Like, like you said, they're not opposites and they do work together. Um, I, I think I like, there's a couple of ideas that I have about it. Um, I mean, one, one of the sayings that I'm sure you guys, everyone's probably heard, you know, is that knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad or a fruit smoothie or whatever, because there there's something different between just knowing facts and being able to help those facts, bringing those facts to life and, and knowing the applicable way to bring them into your life. Um, it, it reminds me of in high school, I, I was really good at math and, um, I loved math. It was one of my favorite classes. I was in a, my AP calculus class and I was doing really well. I got good grades. I ended up passing the test um, the AP test and got a really good score on it, but not once during that class could I have ever told you how, what anything I was doing meant. I, 
I knew how to solve all of the problems. I knew the formulas. I knew how to get the right answers, but I still like to this day, don't even know what I was doing. I, I don't know. (laughs) I know it's used in engineering and whatever, but I, I could not tell you what those formulas meant. So I had knowledge of sorts, but I had no wisdom when it came to calculus, right? I, I, there's no way I could have ever really applied that to anything that was meaningful. Right. And, and I think a lot of us who pursue knowledge or, or even are told that we ought to pursue knowledge, have that kind of relationship with knowledge that we don't understand the practical application for it. We don't see why we need to know this stuff, right? That's the, the stereotypical mm-hmm student question, when am I ever going to use this? And the teacher's response is, well, you got to use it to pass the test that I'm going to give you. Right. And and so we have this kind of really distorted relationship with knowledge. And then when you don't pass the test, you know, you build your, your identity around that as someone who can't pass a a dumb algebra test. Mm -hmm. There's another uh, popular story that I've, that I'm familiar with that, that connects to this is it's this the story of three different men who, or or, sorry, three different people (laughs) who, who die and kind of go to, to meet their maker. And, and it's this office space. They, they walk in and, and they sit down at the desk and, and the first one is asked, you know, tell me what you know about Jesus. And their response is, who is this Jesus of whom you speak? And, you know, representative of, of the kind of person who has never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, who doesn't know anything, the wisdom or the knowledge isn't there, but they might have wisdom of having known to live a good life, to be kind to people, to, to treat others fairly. And, and they're dismissed. The second one is invited into the office at that point. And, and they again ask the same question. Tell me everything you know about Jesus Christ. <laughs> And the second person is quite knowledgeable. Oh, they've they've studied everything. Oh, the, the Jesus was was you know a, a a possibly realistic figure who would have been born uh, in in Bethlehem around this time, probably most likely around six A.D. Between three B.C. and six A.D. would be the actual time of his birth. He's the stereotypical Christ archetype figure that shaped this part of of human history. And they're going to tell you everything that they know about this Christ figure. And they say, oh, wow, you you sure have read a lot. You sure have studied a lot. You know a lot that there is to know about this Jesus Christ character. And then they're dismissed. And and the third person is, is then invited into the office and before the interviewer can even ask a question they recognize the interviewer fall down on their on their knees and proclaim my lord my god right because they instantly recognize the savior uh, as soon as they enter into his presence it's really interesting to me so i have this along with this relationship with knowledge this idea that that things should be logical and that, that logic is, is beauty. The things that are logical are beautiful. And I remember as a, as a missionary having these you know, 17 key points of a true church and, and all these things 
where I can prove to you using the scriptures that, that the, this is God's church on the earth, that it's been restored, you know, whatever. Because I, I remember thinking, you know, logic is beauty. And it was actually just this morning that uh, my, my family was, was reading scriptures together. And we were reading Abinadi, actually quoting Isaiah, um, where, uh, where we're reminded in Isaiah 53, or you can also find it in Mosiah 14, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. To me, that idea that logic is beautiful means that sometimes logic and knowledge are wholly inadequate for helping me actually know the Savior. They, they don't tell me my place in the world. They don't tell me who God is. And it really then causes me, when I use those broken and simple and human tools to try to define eternal things, man, do they lead me astray and, and distort my perception, both of God and of myself, and which then causes me to, to need to repent, to need to learn to see myself and God differently, um, because I'm relying too heavily on the tools of man to come to this eternal knowledge or this eternal understanding. And, and I think like a big difference here is with the knowledge, I mean, the idea is that with knowledge, I can make better decisions. With wisdom, I can become a better person. Yes, it's, it, wisdom is transformational, right? Right. Yeah, I love that. And it reminds me um, of a video that I watched from a man named Sadhguru. Mm -hmm. And um, he kind of was, he was talking to a woman in this video. The woman was basically just asking him all of the important questions that she could think of because she is, she's this woman that has just seeked her whole life for, for, you know, enlightenment and Nirvana and that peace that we're all looking for. And she has found herself just kind of jumping from practice to practice. She had done Christianity. She had done Buddhism and uh, Hinduism and, you know, everything that you can think of, she had tried it. And she was asking about how, you know, she had taken up a, a really intensive yoga training and was participating with this group for a long time. And she really had felt like, okay, I think I found the key. I've, I've found it now. And she went into it just so excited. She was ready, ready to be transformed. And she read all of the yoga sutras, right. That mm -hmm. explain all the methodology and how, how it's done. Um, and, and, she, and then she did it for a while and soon found that it just, really wasn't doing anything for her and it had almost become a burden in her life. It, it became work and it, it just wasn't transforming her like she thought it would. And, um, 
she asked him, you know, why is that? Why, you know, if, if this is such a good practice and it's, and it helps so many people, why hasn't it helped me? And uh, Sadhguru responds back to her and says, essentially what a sutra, the word sutra, it actually means thread. And um, a sutra is supposed to like hold a practice together. And, and it kind of reminded me of the idea of the law, right? We have the law in, in our church and in Christianity. We've, and we've been given laws and commandments and things to follow. So kind of picture the thread as the law, but he said that the, the sutras are the thread. He said, but if you want to use that thread to make a garland to wear on your head, um, you're, you're going to need that thread, but you're not going to just put the thread around your head, right? That kind of, that's not beautiful. It's not come alive. It's, it's nothing special. You don't just want the thread on your head and you're going to want to add flowers or some type of adornment to it. And, and it's those, it's the flowers and the beautiful things that are added to the thread that um, make it come alive and make it become what it actually is meant to be its true purpose. And, um, in order for us, he said that wisdom essentially is, is knowledge that's come alive. Mm -hmm. If you have just the knowledge part, then all you have is that thread, right? And, and that's a good basis. It's something that you want and need. Um, but without turning it into what it was supposed to be, um, by adding, adding the flowers and the beautiful things, um, it, it hasn't lived up to the, the fulfillment of its creation. Right. Yeah. And so yeah. I, I really liked that idea of wisdom being knowledge that's come alive. And, he, and she asked after that, so how do we make it come alive? And he said, basically that's up to you as the individual, when you look inward and, and the way that he describes things when you're looking inward, it, it's kind of how we would describe reaching for God, right? right. And allowing God to speak, a, speak to us. And it, it, yeah, it's basically saying the same thing. We have to allow that, that inner voice, that inner wisdom and the, the teachings from God and the universe and all of those important things to come out, right. And, and be actually applied to things with, it, it just really makes me think of the idea, you know, the spirit of the law and the law, like you edit this out. My brain's going, <laughs> no, 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 that's great. <laughs> edit that no. part out. But basically, yeah, the, the spirit and the law, they, they need to go together in order for things to work properly in order to be guided fully by God, right? We have to have that spirit with us in order for the law to come alive. Right. And, and, where is this in, in Alma 34 in the book of Mormon, I think maybe it's 32 where they talk about the, an, an experiment on the word on the, the seed. I think it's gotta be 32. Um, but, it, but where we're encouraged to experiment on the word and see if it brings forth good fruit, notice that it, it doesn't say like, Oh, by the way, you're going to have a perfect knowledge of understanding. Like that comes after. The, yeah. the knowledge comes through this pursuit of wisdom that you can, you can attain a perfect knowledge as well. And actually I, this, 
is a, a great transition into the next thing that I really wanted to talk about is this idea that we've put a premium on knowledge within the church. We value knowledge more than we should. Uh, and that valuing or hypervaluing of knowledge actually blocks us from being to exercise and live and grow in our faith. Because if you have knowledge, you don't need faith, right? You talked about this a little bit earlier. There is a, uh, a chapter, I think, or, or a, a section in the Tao Te Ching that I've taken to reading recently in where it says people read because they want to know. But the more you study the Tao or the way, the less you want knowledge. And that actually tied in really well <clears throat> with something that we had talked about earlier. The idea that, uh, that the knowledge actually gets in our way. It becomes a distraction. And it, and it makes it so that we can't hear the voice of God. Well, because we know already. And, and the things that God is telling us um, are, are contradicting things that, that we know. Oh, Moses, go talk to these people. I, I can't talk to those people. I know that I am not able to speak. No, you don't. You think you're not able to speak and you've convinced yourself that that's a truth, but it's not actually true. And, and so this pursuit of knowledge actually gets in the way of us being able to, to live in our faith and, and to learn wisdom from God. It's interesting because I think that it both, it, it harms the person who's trying to develop their faith, but it also, in, in my perspective, like it cheapens the process of, of revelation because we think, oh, all I have to do is read this and I've heard this idea and now I know this thing to be true. And, and that's not how knowledge, especially of gospel principles, is attained, right? That, that it is attained through this pursuit of wisdom. How, how do you get this knowledge? You live it. Wait, but, but that's, that's wisdom. If I live a principle that I don't know if it's true or not, but it might be wise for me to follow in the interim, even without that knowledge of truth, great. Follow it anyway. And, and as you live in that wisdom, this is how you will be able to develop that perfect knowledge. But in, in the meantime, you don't need that perfect knowledge. And, and we have this, this culture where it's everyone stands up on, on fast and testimony meeting. And I don't want to, to try to claim that people don't know the things that they say they know. But we put on this presentation, and I, I remember doing this as a missionary not for investigators, not for it. In my MTC district, eight other missionaries, and, and we were all invited to bear our testimony. And I made an absolute clown out of myself when I, I gave a 35-minute sermon on all of the things that I claimed to know. And I didn't actually know those things. But because knowing those things was viewed as something that was valuable. Hey, if you know the gospel, it's going to make you a better missionary. So of course I want to say that I know those things. My entire identity is built on this process of knowing, but there's multiple examples in the scriptures where people who have had just these amazing spiritual experiences. My favorite is, is Nephi 
when he's he's seeing this vision that his father has had why because he wants to have this experience for himself why because he wants to understand it and first he has this vision and and then he has a, this explanation of this vision that he has and and an angel asks him knowest thou the condescension of the son of god and nephi stumped he doesn't know he doesn't know what those words mean. I don't, I don't know. He doesn't know what's going on here. And so Nephi's response is, uh, I don't know everything, but I know God loves his children. Okay. When we talk about this idea of like unknowing or, or being willing to recognize the limits of our own knowledge, this is where faith resides. This is, this is where we're able to, to live and breathe and grow in our faith. But we have to be able to come to terms with the fact that we don't know. And even if we, we say, or, or rather, even, even if in the church we like to say, I know, we also have to come become okay with saying, I don't know. And I think for, for both you and I, for a lot of our life, that was, that was really difficult in, in both religious, secular, and anything to be able to admit I don't know this and that's okay. Yeah, it's definitely been a difficult thing. And it, it's something that over the past few years, I have really worked on trying to be comfortable with uncertainty, right? And there, there's an idea out there um, as you talk about unknowing um, that there are a couple of ways uh, in theology where that try to explain like how we get to know God. And one of those ways that we definitely don't focus on within our church tradition, um, is, is called an apophatic way or a mm -hmm. negative way of knowing God. And basically that idea is that none of our concepts can properly describe or or know god right um that that god transcends all human concepts and that there can actually be a way to a real true way to connect to god through that unknowing the the admission that god is so much more than i could ever imagine and God is, you know, God is love. God is everywhere. God is everything. And, and we don't have the language or the tools to really describe it. And, and it's more about our experience and the silence and being present with him than it is about knowing him. I mean, or being able to describe him to someone or or say that I have the proper belief, you know, like being orthodox, I have the proper belief or, um, it's more about just being with him. And, and that reminds me of something that we had talked about, about how the first time that I learned about the way that many, well, I guess most other Christians besides Latter-day Saints view heaven right yeah, yeah um yeah the idea you know the first time i heard well even back to the song um by mercy me and it says that's called i can only imagine do you know that song sure in, in there he says you know he he can't wait 
to meet God and, and forever worship him. And that idea was kind of foreign to me because like, that's not how we really view heaven in, or the, you know, the celestial kingdom or all of the things that we think heaven is going to be like. Um, when I first learned that so many other religions just kind of, they're happy and excited and willing to just go to heaven and just worship God forever. And at first I was like, that's kind of weird. But as I thought about it, I was like, this is so beautiful. And there's something in this, like, do I want to go to heaven to be with God and be in union with him and, you know, in union with my heavenly mother? And, or is it about me like going and creating worlds and creating people and doing all of these really cool things. And, and I'm not saying that those things are bad to look forward to or, or that they're wrong or anything, but it's, it's a totally different way of knowing God. Right. And it's, and I have it's, a, a what's in it for me mindset. Yeah. It's kind of more trans a transactional idea, right? If I, if I can just get to heaven, I can do all these cool things. God will, you know, God will allow me to do all this stuff and I'll become, you know, a God myself. And, you know, but the idea, the idea of just being with God being enough is, is a beautiful concept to me. Yeah. And, and that's really interesting because in order to have that, that beautiful experience that you've had, you, you had to kind of suspend your own belief and say, you know, I don't really know that they're wrong. And what if they are right? Can I entertain this thought for a moment? Can I even for a brief moment suspend the things that I claim to know myself or recognize that I don't know these things and just say, what if? What if, right? And, and, and I think that's, oh, go ahead. Well, and, you know, and, and would that be enough for me? Right. You know? Well, and I think that's the great power of, of acknowledging our, what we don't know is that it's an invitation to ask questions. And, and as we look at, at the kinds of questions that we ask <clears throat> and who asks questions and, and how, how do I change the questions that I'm asking when I'm trying to get information when I'm trying to develop knowledge, how is that different than the questions that I might ask when I'm trying to develop this wisdom? There's some, so I'm, I'm actually giving a presentation for work this, this weekend. So after this airs, we'll probably be several weeks in the past. Um, a, and it's all about this process of questioning, not necessarily seeking for knowledge, but questioning as a way of existing, questioning as a way of being. And it's really interesting when you look at the world and you, you figure out like, why do we ask questions? Well, questions are, are a good way to learn. Cool. Who gets to ask questions? Where do we ask questions? Do we ask a lot of questions in school? No. Wait a minute. If asking questions is a great way to learn new things, why don't we ask questions in school? Well, because we've built this whole culture, both in, in and outside of school, <clears throat> where knowledge is is given this structure, this taxonomy, and it has to be delivered to people in certain ways 
And, and when we say, you know, let's give kids milk before meat, we mean that we know what milk is and we know what meat is and we have to give this information to kids accordingly. Um, some, just some interesting statistics on this. Uh, this was a, a study done, I, I believe this was the study done by the Right Question Institute. Um, average four to five-year-old girl asks upwards of 350 questions every day. If you've ever raised a young child, you know this to be true with every bone in your eardrums or near your eardrums. Um, boys aren't far behind at that age, four to five years old. They ask about 250 questions a day. Most of them are why. They're seeking understanding. They're seeking knowledge. Questioning drops off radically about age six or seven. Huh, interesting. That's about the time most kids start going to formal school environments. In a structured setting, there is a, a hierarchy of who gets to ask questions, who is allowed to ask questions, what kind of questions are people allowed to ask. And it's generally that insiders, group members, are given preferential treatment in the ability to ask questions. Now, there's reason for this, right? It's because within the group setting, within group structures, these, these organized meetings, uh, a Sunday school class, for example, it's not necessarily the environment to ask questions that take the rest of accepted doctrine and throw them out the window and say, hey, what if everything we knew about heaven was actually wrong and we were just going to sit and play our harps and, and sing God's praises for eternity? Are we okay with that? Maybe that venue isn't the right place to ask that question, but does it mean that we can't ask those kinds of questions? Your example here, you found this experience or, or you had this experience that gave you this like tremendous insight and appreciation. But it, it wasn't in asking that question in a Sunday school class, was it? No, that was just just me thinking and pondering about it. Right. And, and so it's, it's not that, we, that every question needs to be asked, every situation, wherever we are. But when we only ask questions within these institutional frameworks, then only approved questions get asked. And approved questions in a school environment are questions that reflect knowledge. Do you know? Do you know? Do you know? Who can tell me this? What did you read in this? What's the answer to this question? And if we actually want to become, if we actually want to pursue wisdom, we've got to change the questions that, that we're asking. You've, you've got a, an idea here that or a note here that you've got a couple quotes on this idea of, of who gets to ask questions. Do you have those handy? Yeah. Um, let's see. Well, one, one thought that um, I really liked was from a Polish American rabbi named Abraham Joshua Heschel. And he says that we are closer to God when we are asking questions than when we think we have the right answer. Um, and I, th I think the reason for that is that we, we close off ourselves w when we've got it all figured out we, that we've kind of talked about, we, we close off that, um, 
the, the ability to receive that revelation. And even um, President, U well, Elder Uchtdorf now says, if we stop asking questions, stop thinking, stop pondering, we can thwart the revelations of the spirit. And, and that's because we close ourselves off to that. Um, Sherry Dew had, has quite a few great thoughts about questioning. She said that the Lord wants us to ask every probing question we can muster because not asking questions can be far more dangerous than asking them. And like you said, you know, maybe not every question is appropriate for every setting. Um, I personally feel like, you know, we can do a better job of not getting so fearful of certain questions when we are at church, you know, like for sure, for when sure. things are outside the norm and people are genuinely seeking answers and truth. Um, I think that there's, we always need to keep in mind our intent when we're asking a question. Um, you know, is it because we're trying to prove a point, you know, or we're trying to prove someone wrong or we're trying to be contentious because sometimes when, I mean, I've done it myself, I'll, I'll ask a question with an intent to shut someone else's thought down, right? Or, or to disagree with them in, in an unkind way. So I think that so much of our questioning, especially in like a church setting, just needs, we just need to be mindful of our intent and our, where our heart is and what the, you know, what our reasoning is for, for asking that question. Am I using this question or, or am I asking this question because I'm going to use its answer as a shield or a weapon? Yeah. Or, or am I trying to, to create uncomfortableness? So one of the, the differences that I think that exists between knowledge and wisdom that, that we haven't touched on yet, but I think it applies here, is that knowledge has this burden of having to be universally true. If, if something is true, it has to be true for everyone um, when it comes to knowledge, when it comes to information. Wisdom doesn't have to work that way, right? And, and so, yeah. so when I can say, well, this has worked for me. It is wisdom in me that I should do these things. Well, it might not be wisdom that you do those things as well. And so can you wield wisdom as a weapon or, or as a shield? Maybe, but I don't know if you can to the same degree. Yeah. And I, I think if you bring in your ego along with that wisdom, if you've somehow allowed that wisdom to make you feel special that you received this wisdom, sure. you know, I think you can, your ego can pretty much find a way to weaponize <laughs> anything. But I think if, you know, if you're using it in humility and pure wisdom, yeah, I think it's different than how you might use that knowledge. You know, it makes me think of one thing that I have definitely found that is wisdom in my life that I, I truly believe was given to me directly from God was your life will go better if you make your bed every day. <laughs> and I, I remember when I received that thought or that inspiration, it was at a time when my kids were little, I was overwhelmed. I was going to school. Everything was just chaotic for me. And, you know, God knew me enough that if I got a little bit of order, <laughs> if I just found some way to make some order in my life, that 
it would help me to function throughout my entire day. And I remember I just, I decided, okay, I'm going to go with this thought and I'm just going to do it. And that wisdom for me has truly changed my life. Now it, it could become detrimental to me if it's like, well, my life won't work unless I make my bed, you know, like I have to keep the wisdom in a, you know, in its true spirit and not allow that to, you know, to control me in any way. But yeah, that, that wisdom for me may not work for other people, you know, like maybe other people don't need that one step of order in the morning to get them going. But for me, it was so individualized and perfect for exactly what I needed that it has been a transformational experience for me to make my bed every day. Well, and I think that's the beauty of wisdom is that what, what might be wisdom for you at one point in your life, after you've gone through that transformation, that bit of wisdom is not as needed as it once was. It doesn't mean you change your behavior. It means that, you know, you, you go back to not making your bed, at least in this particular instance, it means that you've been transformed. Yes. That, that bit of wisdom, someone doesn't need to come along and tell you, Hey, make your bed every day, because that is part of who you are. That wisdom has been, been internalized. Right. Yeah. Where, where both other people may not need it, but also you may not need that at different times in your life. And so that kind of ambiguity of wisdom, I think is actually one of the things that makes it so our wisdom is more difficult to become an idol of sorts. Because I I can't hold it up and say, this is my wisdom, everyone has to follow this. Well, if we understand through the nature of wisdom, they go, oh, that's great for you check back with it. Because if you think your wisdom means everyone else needs to follow it, you don't understand your own wisdom in that sense. And it's not wisdom. It's a claim to knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, that is one thing that we can definitely learn to maybe be more careful with when it comes to like our experiences with other members, when we go to church or, you know, even things that people say online, you know, testimony bearing people can get up, you know, I could get up and I could bear my testimony of, you know, making my bed every day and everyone else needs to recognize that that is wisdom for her. Maybe it's an internalized, you know, is that something that I feel like God is asking me to do or not? Like everything that is said, isn't always prescriptive to, to what, every, you know, what everyone should be doing. And I think there are even things like within our church culture and things that, um, there are certain things that we definitely need to do, right? There are, there are those things along the path or whatever that are prescribed to us. Mm -hmm. But there are so many things within what we do in our church that really can be individualized. They can, you can look at it and say, you know what, this isn't working for me, even though everyone else seems to get a lot out of this. It's, it's not for me. And I think that we can take these, these, not these negotiable things within the church and, and individualize them to us. And 
we need to be okay with other people doing things a little bit differently than we do and finding their own wisdom, connecting to their own inner authority and their direct source to God and, and allowing people to say, this is wisdom for me. And, you know, and, and it might not look like that wisdom for you. Well, and, and that concept really changed the nature of my relationship with the scriptures in precisely that way. In that when you read the scriptures with the idea that you're gaining knowledge and, and that's what you're aiming for, I'm going to, I'm going to know more about the scriptures. I'm going to get this historical context. I'm great. But if the person writing that wasn't trying to be 100% accurate, wasn't trying to convey this precise thing, and, and that's the intention that you're reading it with, you're, you're missing the point. If their goal was to convey wisdom and you're seeking for knowledge, you're going to miss both because you're going to claim to know things that aren't true and weren't intended to be taken as true. Yeah, absolutely. As I try to read the scriptures looking for wisdom, well, now the scriptures don't have to bear this burden of 100% factual accuracy in, in my eyes. And, and I can read them for the wisdom that is in them, which then has opened me up to several other books of, of traditional wisdom. And I can take the wisdom that is in there that applies to me in this moment that works for me in helping me connect with God in this way with the understanding that some of this wisdom may not apply to me, may not apply today, may not apply in my life ever, because that's the nature of wisdom. It's, it's very personal. It's very individualized. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm reminded of another thing from Sadhguru, where he talks about the idea of kind of circling back to this idea of the endless pursuit of knowledge, right? He, he shared a story of um, the idea that a thousand years ago, if you wanted to know how many stars were in the sky, you, you had to just look at it with your naked eye, you know, lay down on the grass and find a dark spot and try to count as many, as many stars as you could. And maybe you could count a few thousand or whatever you were able to get up to. And at that time you would think, okay, so there's about, you know, five or 6,000 stars in the sky or whatever you came up with. And, but then over time, as people kept asking this question and wanting a more and more exact answer, they started to develop stronger and stronger telescopes and other tools to help us to be able to number the stars. Um, he said, you know, now we know that there are over 2 billion stars. I don't know if that's an accurate number or not. That's what he said, you know, and he said, so now we know that there there's that much more. And so the knowledge has grown and changed, changed with us. But he said, tell me, is the world getting more mysterious with this knowledge or less mysterious? And he says, you know, it, it's actually, it's become more mysterious as we've learned more. Um, and with all this exploration, it should have brought more clarity, you would think. But what it has brought is more confusion than ever before. 
because you're trying to know existence from the outside. Um, so what he's saying is basically, we're trying to understand all knowledge is this pursuit of actually, the way that he describes it is we're really actually just trying to get to know who we are. Um, but we, we decide to study, we think if we can understand the entire cosmos, the entire universe, that that's gonna help explain everything for us. And he says, so that this type of searching is searching outward. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're trying to know existence from the outside. If you turn inward and, and try to let go of some of your sense perce- perception, um, then the very process of creation is happening within you. Everything is happening within you and your body is being created all the time. Um, if you know this mechanism, this piece of life. So if you know yourself and, and you truly learn to connect with your inner root and your inner being, he said, that's all you really need to know. If you know this piece of life from beginning to its ultimate end, um, the way that this piece of life made is made, everything else is made the same way. And so when we, when we get that connection to God and our true self and our inner being, it helps us to understand everything around us that much better. He said, you can dissect a frog to try to figure out what, how life works. Right. And that, and that's an external way to do it. But the better way to understand life is to turn inward. Um, As within, so without. Yeah, yeah. And, and when you really turn inward and try to understand who you are, everything else makes more sense and it gives meaning to, to everything. And, and it's not just about who you are, because when you actually discover who you are, you actually discover that you're one with God, right? We're made in the image of God. We're children of God. And once you really find that true self, you find God at the same time. And that illuminates everything around you. That's awesome. Okay. I I love that story that you just shared. Um, The idea that, that we've got to look inward, that we've got to turn inward. I think one of the big things that, that you and I kind of touched on on pre-show is this idea like what's the difference when we ask questions in the pursuit of knowledge versus when us asking questions in the pursuit of wisdom uh, what's the difference between the two and I think that that really answers it is pursuing wisdom is is looking inward and and trying to understand our relationship with God by looking inward whereas pursuing knowledge, still valuable, still worthwhile. Um, but it tends to look more outward and, and it, you know, there's a lot that we can learn about our place in the universe. There's a lot that we can learn about, um, you know, the, the power and might and majesty of God by exploring creation. But if we're really trying to be transformed, we've, we've got to look inward. We've got to have, uh, have that, that, inner questioning and i think that's really kind of the direction that we would probably like to uh, to end with is to to invite our listeners that to ask more questions and to try and frame their questions 
in a way that is more inward facing. A lot of times we'll ask questions. Oh, why, why are things this way in the church? What do the scriptures mean when they say this? Um, but I think an, an alternative way of phrasing those questions that, that looks inward and helps us to develop a, a deeper sense of wisdom is to ask ourselves or, or to ask, how can I find peace in this absence of knowledge? Can I continue to live with in, in uncertainty? Can I, can I move forward without knowing? Can I trust God without knowing everything that he knows? Um, and so I think, so I think as, we, as we wrap up, that that would be something that we would invite the listeners to do as they move through this week is to tr- turn their questions inward. Yeah. And, and ask, I mean, for people like us that struggle with this endless thirst for knowledge, you know, is there, can we ask ourselves, can I be at peace without this knowledge? Can I be at peace without this continual pursuit and an endless consuming of information? Right. And, and I think that when we focus on our personal and direct relationship with the divine, with, with our true self and with, with our God, um, we, it creates like the scriptures say how Jesus brings us the, the peace that passeth all understanding, right? It, when we have that peace, um, it helps us to be okay with the uncertain things. It helps us to be okay with not knowing, and it helps to direct us and, and clarify things that maybe wouldn't have been clarified any other way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we think that peace comes from having all the answers, that peace comes from having a perfect knowledge. But Jesus reminds us that that's the world's peace, and he's not here to bring us the peace of the world. He's here to bring us peace in our uncertainty, in our lack of knowledge, in our known ignorance that that he can bring us peace in those things so i think that's right on right on track yeah he he teaches us our true identity and that's in union with god right when when we know that true identity it brings that peace it it calms down the uncertainty the fears helps us to increase our faith i mean it just does a a, a mountain of things that um, I know that when I've experienced that peace, because I, I know I don't have it all the time and I'm always searching for more and more knowledge and things like that. But when I am in those moments where I am present with God, my, my, my endless thirst for knowledge really does just kind of fall by the wayside. Right. And it, um, it just provides so much in my life that I hope to be able to continue to turn inward, not focus so much on the outward and press forward in faith with that. Yeah, exactly. I, I don't really have anything to add with that. I think it's just that, that moving forward into the unknown, into the uncertainty and, and discovering the wisdom that lies in therein. Absolutely. Well, I think that we have kind of touched on a lot of stuff today and um, hopefully Hopefully you guys have been able to relate to some of it and 
experience some insight with us. We really appreciate you listening. We're grateful for the opportunity to be guest co-hosts today. Um, and we just would like to encourage you to like and comment any, on any of our things on Latter-day Peace Studies and be sure to subscribe to continue listening to Latter-day Contemplation. We're on iTunes, Stitcher. We've got our website site, latterdaypeacestudies.org. So you can find us pretty much anywhere. And we're grateful that you were able to join us today. Thanks, Lindsay. Thanks, Tom. Take care.